to give one more announcement, and I left my notebook down here. So while I'm grabbing that, let me give this announcement. Um, as you will see, Darcy and I decided to go ahead and put our mask back on this morning. Um, COVID continues to ramp back up in our area. And one of the things we've talked about as a family is wanting to be wise, take precautions, but we don't want anything, and we mean anything, keeping us from interacting with you as a church. So for us personally, we're going to make the decisions uh, to go ahead and put our mask back on. That does not mean you all need to. Each of you needs to make your own decision where you feel your comfort level, whether it's to, to mask back up or not. The statistics show that if you've been vaccinated, uh, the, the chance of severe illness or anything outside of, of a cold and, or even a hospitalization is slow. It's mostly like cold type symptoms. So if you've been vaccinated, you feel completely fine and don't want to mask up again, that's fine. If you've not been vaccinated and don't want to mask back up, you have to make that choice for yourself. I'm not now, as we meet as a council, some things may change in that discussion, uh, and we'll readdress that in a couple weeks. But for now, everyone make your decision where you feel comfortable. We just don't want anything to hinder us from being with you, the people. We did that for the first few months in our time here at the church. We don't want to do that again. We want to be involved in your lives. We want to be with the people. And if that means putting this silly mask back on, by all means, I'm going to do it. So uh, that's. I just wanted to share that right here, especially as we go into our pastoral prayer and pray for our uh, church, our the rest of our service, as well as our nation and the world in dealing with this COVID-19. So let's go to our Lord once more in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your goodness, your mercy to us in Christ. Father, Lord, we are a frail people, even as this uh, disease continues to show, Lord, it comes and it, it claims lives much sooner than any could imagine. Father, Lord, it is ripping back through our own city. Father, we pray for those that are sick and affected with the virus. We pray, Lord, that your hand would be upon them, that you would heal them, that you would care for them. Lord, be with the frontline workers as hospital beds fill up again, Lord, with so many uh, infected by the virus. We pray, God, that you would be with those workers. Help them to have strength and energy and diligence to do their jobs effectively. Father, Lord, we pray, Lord, for an eradication of this virus. So many times in, in our world history, Lord, these pandemics have come up, and Lord, they have sooner or later gone away. So, Lord, we are praying that this will repeat again, or that COVID-19 would cease to exist and be no more. Father, we pray for wisdom for those here at Central City Baptist Church, as well as others around the city and state and world. Give wisdom of how they should proceed. Lord, help them to listen to their own conscience and, and make their own decisions on this wisely. Father, I pray that you will give each one that wisdom. And Father, I pray that you will uh, continue to bring unity as I know this can be a divisive subject. And that's why we want to approach it in such a, a way that's pleasing and glorifying to you, Father. Because we don't want something like this to divide. We want to be united as your people and worshiping you together. Father, Lord, we also don't want to just pray for ourselves this morning. We want to pray for other churches in particular this morning. We want to pray for Anglesia Bautista Latin de Effingham and their pastor, Tony Munoz. Father, we pray for our sister uh, church there, uh, in particular this Spanish church. Father, God, I pray that we pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work through our sister church there in Effingham, or that many would hear the gospel and come to faith, that you would build up your church there as they proclaim your glory. Lord, continue to strengthen our sisters and brothers there in their faith. 
Father, we also want to pray for Awakened City Church in Harriman, Utah, and their pastor, Derek Duvall, Lord, uh, for this recent church plant uh, through the North American Mission Board. Father, we pray, Lord, for this strategic church plant there in Utah, a, a city filled where many deny that uh, parts of Orthodox Christianity. Lord, we pray that this local church would declare your truth there and many would come to believe in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Father, we too want to pray for our brothers and sisters serving around the world. This morning, we want to pray for James and Sonia and their service there in uh, Uganda, especially among the islands of Lake Victoria. Father, we pray for this brother and sister and their work through the International Mission Board. We pray, Lord, that as they've had to uh, be off the islands for some time as restrictions pick back up, Lord, that you would give them uh, the ability to return to these islands soon to uh, further help equipping churches there as well as reaching the lost. God, we pray, Lord, for you to uh, strengthen their hand and their labors and their efforts in this work. And God, again, we just want to pray Lord, for our time here. We pray, Lord, as we come to your word to humble our hearts, to have ears to hear, so that we may know that we are hearing from your voice through your word being proclaimed. Father, will you move as your word goes forth now? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the most awkward conversations I've ever had to have happened in a Sunday school class in my hometown of Dayton, Tennessee. The town's already got a bad nickname. It's called Monkey Town because of the Scopes Monkey Trials. Uh, if you know nothing about that, here's a history lesson. Go look it up. I'm not going to spend time on the monkey trials there today. But uh, it, it's an interesting place. It's where I grew up and, and some of my family still lives today. But as I said in the Sunday school class, I was in town visiting. It's a church I knew very well. I was related to a good chunk of the older members of the congregation. And in that Sunday school, I heard an older gentleman who I was related to, so I had some credibility with this man. He said, you know, I just don't get these young people. They come into the house of God without reverence for God. And as I, I listened closer, he began to explain what he meant. It was because they didn't come in a certain way dressed. They came in with coffee cups and, and different things. And I looked at him, I said, wait a minute, time out here. How do you approach your quiet time in the morning? Do you get up and put a suit on? Do you not have a cup of coffee in your hand? He kind of looked at me funny. I said, because I can tell you how I get up. I get up, hit the coffee maker, go to the bathroom, get under a blanket with my cup of coffee, and I open the Bible. So am I disrespecting God? Am I not coming reverently before God? You, you see this whole demeanor begin to change on his face. He knew he could not argue with that. The thing is, how many of us think of something of reverence is something we wear or the way we come in, can't have a cup of coffee, can't have a, a soda or a Coke or Dr. Pepper, whatever term you want to use. I use Coke for everything. I'm a true Southerner. If you use pop or, or anything else, sorry, I'm going to always call it Coke. I'm a, I'm a boy from East Tennessee, forgive me. Uh, but the point is, having reverence about God is a heart issue. It's how do we come to that Bible? How do we come as we gather in the church? Are we expecting to hear from God? Are we expecting to draw near to Him and meet him. Brothers and sisters, if you come in jeans every week, I could care less. It doesn't make us more reverent. But if we come haughty, thinking we know it all, that's an issue. Let us come in humility as we come to God's word and carefully hear from it and then rightly try and apply it. And I think that's what we're going to find as we open up Ecclesiastes 8 this morning. Solomon, 
As we've been studying this book of Ecclesiastes, if you've not already opened your Bibles there, please go ahead and open up there. In Ecclesiastes 8, halfway through the Bible, uh, over a few pages, and you'll come to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes has been teaching us here, there's a time for everything. There's a season for everything. There's a time for life. There's a time for death. Solomon, the preacher king, has been trying to observe everything he sees, trying to find meaning, trying to find understanding. He's seen, he's searched for wisdom. He's searched for purpose in his toil. He's searched for pleasure. And all of these things have left him unsatisfied. He's called it all vanity. Vanity of vanity is it all. He's seen that under the sun, there's a great evil as we've been working our way continually through Ecclesiastes. And that's where we pick up because Solomon has began to notice a few themes that are prevalent through Ecclesiastes. Namely, what do we do in the midst of this evil? What do we do in the midst when death is coming for us all? We fear God and we enjoy the lot that he has given. And that's what we're going to see again in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. So, Follow along with me as I read Ecclesiastes 8, beginning in verse 1 through the end of the chapter. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun." When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know he cannot find it out. If I've studied and understood this text correctly. The main point of the text, and therefore the main point of this sermon, is this. Christian, our goal in this life is not to find out all that God is doing. Our duty is to fear God and be joyful. Let me repeat that. Christian, our goal in this life is not to find out all that God is doing. Our duty is to fear God and be joyful. We're going to look at this in three points. We're going to look at at the search for wisdom in point number one. Point number two, the fear of God. And point number three, the invitation to joy. But let's start in point number one, the search for wisdom. 
Looking back there at verse 1, it starts with this rhetorical question. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? Solomon had just laid out that he has seen one in a thousand a man and none among women in finding wisdom. Again, in Solomon's context, this was he, he may have the only person in his life that he saw who had wisdom with his, was his father, David. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines that were foreigners that he took as wives. And these led him away from the Lord, which is explaining the, the none of the women. This is his life, not the whole of it. So he's coming off of that. He, he's examining this. He's, he's not finding many with wisdom. So he's like, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? But drop down with me to verse 16. He says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Solomon here wants to make one thing clear. The preacher king wants us to know this. We can't know everything God is doing under the sun. It is not expected of us to understand how God is at work. We can't understand how is God working through something like the COVID-19 virus that's spreading like wildfire. God, what are you doing here? It's not meant for us to fully see the full picture. It's not meant for us to know all of these things. It's not meant for us to even know what's going to happen to us tomorrow. Because if we did, how many of us would run the other way from it? Just think of Jonah. Jonah knew what he was called to do. And where did he run? He ran the opposite way. It's not intended for us to know all that God has under the sun. But notice what Solomon does. He, he's recognizing this. Wisdom's not ours to fully grasp at all. But it doesn't mean the pursuit of wisdom is wrong and that he stops trying. Because notice what he says back up in verse 1 there at the end. It says, a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Again, Solomon gets, we can't grasp all that God is doing. In fact, I'd say he would probably allude if he, he would have seen it in Isaiah 55, 8, that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God doesn't think like us. He doesn't act like us. We're his image bearers. Not him, ours. So we can't grasp that. But he recognizes this wisdom has a change on man. He recognizes without wisdom, when sin is consuming us, it hardens that hole of our face is, is the language he's using. It shows a hardness of heart and body and mind and thought. It reveal, is revealed in how we live throughout life. Philip Ryken says, People who live without God in the world often show the proud demeanor or stern expression that comes from a heart hardened by sin. What the preacher called hardness, a face. Our whole demeanor shows that hardness of sin. The way we resist God, the way we stand against him, pushing back, no God, I don't want anything to do with you. God, I don't care what your word says. I want things my way, not your way. Think about it in your own lives when you've resisted God's clear will and calling and ran and chosen sin. We each can, I'm sure, think of at least one circumstance where that's happened. A hardness is over us and, and we're fearful that others are going to find out what's going on within us. The reality is it shows but yet wisdom, as we come to seek it, changes. It says, a man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Wait a minute, what? 
His face shines. Stay with me for a moment. Listen to these few verses. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. I'm not going to read the whole, but but here's the sum up and breaking them down. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. To meditate, it means to dwell, to think. Uh, we, we looked at Psalm 1 not that long ago. But the, the point is, blessed is the man who delights in the law of God. But then Psalm 67.1 goes on to say, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us. And then Psalm 119.135 adds, Make your face to shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. A wise one, one whose face shines, is one who draws near to the presence of God, who comes into his presence and observes his law, who longs for his law, who meditates on his law. This is the blessed man. This is the blessed woman, the one who enters into the presence of God Almighty, who's consumed with thinking, how do I live how do I keep your word in all of my life? This is where Solomon is trying to take us. He's trying to say, think carefully how you apply God's word. Live it out rightly. And I'm going to show this in what Solomon does next in verse 2. So I think Solomon here is trying to teach us in verses 1 and 16 through 17 You can't know everything, but in what you do know, think carefully and act wisely based on what God has given in his revealed word. And notice how he does this in verse two. It says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. So he's telling us here, wise makes your face shine. But now he's going to go and give an example. I think this is what Psalm uh, or uh, Ecclesiastes 8, 2 through 9 is. I think it's an example that Solomon is applying. Here's how you do this. In particular, that of oppression under the sun. He looks at the king's command and he says, keep it. Keep the king's command. Now, we don't have kings in, in our area. We don't have those with with complete ruling, but we do have those in authority that God has given. And the same is true of us as it was for those under kings, to keep those in authority's command. But notice how he grounds this. He says, because of God's oath to him. Now, if you're reading from the NIV, you're going to notice there's a different translation here. Uh, I, I use the ESV, and, and it says, because of God's oath to him, referring to the king. The NIV takes this different. It says, you took an oath before God. Here's what's going on here. I, I want to just briefly explain this. Translators have a tough choice when it comes to translating Hebrew and Greek into the language we have before us, English. Everything is made a choice. And here they, here's what they have. It's Elohim Shavuot. There, there's no of, uh, there's no before, there, there's none of that. So, so translators are left in trying to figure out, okay, is this a genitive, uh, uh, an absolute genitive? Is, is this a, a paraphrastic phrase? What's going on here in, in how we translate it? There's not a lot of information. Context is what gives it. I personally think it is that God's oath to the king. I don't think the NIV gets it right here. And the reason for this is because Solomon has been using, when he's talking about before God in Ecclesiastes, this this phrase, litany, before him. So I think if this would have been an oath before God, there would have been this added phrase there based on Solomon's writings. Also based on what we see in Romans 13.1. Romans 13.1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. I think this supports this idea. But regardless, whether the NIV or the ESV get it right, both are faithful translations. Both can be trusted. And 
really the outcome isn't that much difference. The reason I take the time is I know a lot of you use the NIV, and because I use the ESV, I wanted to point this difference out because ultimately it doesn't affect much. Is the oath to God or is the oath from God to the king? Really doesn't matter because remember a few weeks ago in Ecclesiastes, we're called to keep our oath. We're called to keep what we've promised. So the same still applies, whether the oath is our oath to the king or God's oath to the king, the same still applies in what follows. Namely, we're to keep the king's command because of this oath. Again, notice what Solomon's doing here. He's starting with what's given of God's word and then applying it in his life. He's trying to live this word out faithfully. He doesn't know all the details, but he's trying to live it faithfully with what he does know. But it continues on here showing. He says, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in the evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. There in verse 3, verse 4, for the word of the king is supreme, and who may see, say to him, what are you doing? The king's word have authority. Solomon recognizes this. He's calling the people to obey, and ultimately us obeying that of authorities. But this continues on even in Romans. Romans 13 again, verses 2 through 5 says, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. We keep the king's command because of God's promise to the king. We keep the king's command because God has given him that authority and placed him in that authority. Now, some may be sitting here and say, like, but what about when they're evil? What about when they're bad rulers, oppressive rulers? This is exactly who Solomon's talking about. He's dealing with oppressive rulers as he's coming back to the subject once more of oppression under the sun, the evil that is under the sun. Christ himself, when he was here, was under a wicked government in the Roman rule. One of the most cruel forms of death is what our Savior went to on the cross. Crucifixion is one of the most torturous forms of death. And who came up with that except for those in the days of Jesus? The same authorities that were there when Paul wrote Romans 13. It doesn't matter if they're wicked or if they're good, if we agree or we don't. The call for the one who fears God, which we'll look at in a moment, is to obey God's word, to keep it, especially when we disagree with those in authority. Especially when we disagree. Because this is how it shows we honor God and we hold to his word. Now, there are times where we do have to make a stand against government because it breaks what God has clearly given us. But notice the difference. It, you know, the, the American and, and sports mentality or, or the soldier barbaric mentality is, you know what? I disagree. It's time to grab this sword and let's go. Wrong. It's not the Christ way. Acts 4.15 Acts 4, 15 through 20. Let's zoom in on two that had to do this. Acts 4, 15 through 20. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. 
But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Two apostles who spent time with Christ, saw him crucified, saw him when he appeared, are confronted and told to not speak in the name of Jesus, their king. They're confronted with this. What do we do? The government's now telling us we can't speak. They reject what the government says. But again, notice their, their hard attitude in it. Whether it's right or not, you must choose. We're going to obey Jesus above all. Yesterday, I, I had the opportunity to sit in a conference uh, on the campus uh, of my seminary. Uh, and the brother at the, the final session was talking about the church fathers. And he, he began going into the story of Polycarp. Polycarp was tied. He wasn't crucified and pierced, but he was tied. He was burned for his faith. But even as he's being put to death for his faith, he's thanking the Lord for the opportunity to be counted among those that would suffer for the name of Jesus. He didn't pull and draw the sword. In fact, when the disciples tried that the night Jesus was arrested, Jesus said, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Christian, our job is not to preserve freedoms that we think or, or different things like that. Our job is to honor God in his given word. And sometimes this may mean uh, some of us taking up our own crosses and being crucified or killed for the faith. Our job is to be faithful in the midst of it and submit to those in authority. We resist in right ways. Yes, there may be a time where we do have to raise up swords, where we do have to push back for that of justice and protecting the innocent. Those times may certainly come. But how we do it matters. The norm of the Christian life is to obey. The rarity is to disobey. The norm of us as Christians in keeping the king's command is a call to obey. Just notice how it continues here in verse 5. Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. That going back then to verse 3, be not hasty to go from his presence. I ground that first part in, in showing that the norm is obedience. Because a hasty running from obedience is that of sin. Think about what we do when we get hasty. Even if you're, you're taking a last-minute trip and you're trying to throw everything together last minute, what you forget? Somebody forgot a phone charger. Somebody forgot a toothbrush. Somebody forgot something. I, I just did this. I forgot my phone charger when we went to Louisville this past weekend because I was trying to throw everything together in haste. When we do things in haste, we do things blindly and foolishly and carelessly. The same when we try to go from the king's presence in haste, we do it in wickedness and sin. The way to overcome wickedness and sin is not by adding more sin. It's to do it rightly, to do it justly in the way of our ultimate king, Jesus Christ. So let us not do these things in haste. Notice verse 6, it goes on to add, For there is a time and a way for everything, although a man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? There is a time and a way for everything. There's going to be a time when those will have to disobey their governments and fight against it for justice, for righteousness. 
because of a wicked oppression that can no longer be tolerated. There will be a time, but there's also a way in doing those, doing those rightly, doing those justly. And again, because this is Solomon using one application, there's going to be times in our lives. There's going to be times in our lives where it's important to stay in a job we don't like. And then there's also a time to leave in a right way. There might be a situation, and most of the time, when it's time to, to keep pressing and working in a marriage. But there might come a time of adultery and abuse where the time to flee is there. There's a time and a way for everything under the sun. Let us think wisely and carefully as we hold to God's word, faithfully in applying it. But then it goes on. Verse 8, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Again, Solomon is reminding us we don't have control. This is what is being done in the days uh, of man under the sun, even when man hurts his own mankind. We keep the king's command. We obey. We follow as faithfully as we can. So how many of us approach the Bible in such a way where we want to come to it and say, you know what, God, I just, I need to hear an inspirational word and, and a pat on the back so I can feel good about myself. Or do we come to the word and say, you know what, God, I want to hear from you, even if it's uncomfortable for me. Even if it's going to be things I don't like to hear. Even if it confronts me in my sin. Lord, let me hear from you. And then let me rightly and carefully apply this word. That's kind of what Solomon's trying to show us. Hear God's word and obey and faithfully apply it in a right way. But why? Well, that's where we turn to point two. The fear of God. Look with me here in verse 10 through 13. Solomon is observing all of this. He says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Solomon, as he continues to observe here, is still noticing here the, the wicked are, are being buried properly. They're, they're being praised, even as they do wickedness in their own cities, by the people. All of this is being ignored. And then down in verse 12, it, it looks like, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. So it's seeming like the, the wicked live long and prosperous lives. Wait, what? I mean, I, mean I, I can imagine Solomon's probably sitting here scratching his head like, what, what are you doing? What, what's going on here? How can this be? Shouldn't it be the, the righteous that are flourishing and yet it's the wicked? Where is judgment? These are all the things going on that Solomon's trying to expose to us. He's trying to show us here, though, what happens ultimately for those who lack a fear of God. Yes, their, their lives on this earth may be prolonged. Yes, they may be praised. They're even buried properly. It'd be kind of like us looking at the evil in our day of, um, I'm not even going to try, uh, North Korea, and, and seeing a proper burial for, for such a wicked dictator such as that. Or the day of Adolf Hitler receiving a proper burial after killing how many Jews? That's what's going on in, in the wicked being buried properly and celebrated and praised. They went in and out of the holy places. And again, this is God's people, Israel, that he, Solomon's addressing. But notice what follows in verse 13. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Let me stop you right there. Some of you may have 
connected there, verse 12 and 13, where verse 12 says, prolongs his life, talking about the wicked. And then verse 13 is quickly shifting and saying, will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God? Seems like Solomon's contradicting himself, doesn't it? Reality is, no, he's not. The temptation here is one is looking at life on this earth. The other is looking at eternity. Verse 12 is looking at their life on this earth. Yes, he prolongs his days and lives long and prosperous in this side of eternity. That may be true. But the goal here of prolonging, this language is, is only mentioned a few times in the Bible. In particular, it is brought up in Isaiah 53, 10, and it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Let me reread this one time. Yet. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This is talking about Jesus. This is talking about crushing him. This is talking about putting him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Makes an offering. This this means Jesus pierced, killed, dead. Notice what follows. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The wicked will not prosper. The wicked will not prolong their days when they stand before God in the final judgment. The wicked may have escaped in this life without facing their guilt and their judgment but they will not stand before a holy and righteous God. They will be condemned for their sins. And the reality is, every one of us has to also stand before this holy God. We have to stand before Him in the same way. Who's in and who's out? Those who have denied Christ those who have continued in their sin and tried to make it right in their own doing will be told, just like the wicked, depart from me. I never knew you. You workers of iniquity and lawlessness. And they will be headed to a real place called hell for all eternity. Because God is a good judge. He's a righteous judge. The wicked do not escape him, even though it seems like they do. And yet, and yet, despite the wickedness, despite our sin, God makes a way in and through the blood of Jesus Christ, as we looked at here in Isaiah 53.10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief, so his soul can make an offering for guilt. Jesus was an offering for our own guilt that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. How do we prolong our days for all eternity where it counts? By placing our faith in Jesus. And this is how we know things go well. It's for those who fear God and understand his righteous judgment and turn. They repent from their sins and believe in Jesus. Don't blame me. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet, yet, I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Who is it well with? Those who fear God, who understand his righteousness, his holiness, and fear before him in trembling. They fear his discipline. They fear taking his word seriously and obeying it. Michael Eaton sums it up. He he sums the fear of God as this. The awe and holy caution that arises from realization of the greatness of God. 
if we can't look and, and see who God clearly is and fear him with an all like that, I don't know what kind of God we're looking at. If we see, though, the, the holy God, as Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He fair, fell fearful and trembling. This is what Isaiah saw. Brothers and sisters, is this the God we see and come to worship, that we tremble before him in all of his holiness? And knowing that this holy God invites us to himself through Jesus. Come, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, is what Jesus said. Come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. This is what Christ does. He invites us to come in. But an application from this is, how do we know we actually fear this God? We might all verbally say it, but one of the, the ways that we can know if we actually fear God is going back to that introduction. How do you approach God in reverence? Is it a means of you come to him wanting as you open up the pages of the Bible? We can't say we fear God and never open up his word and say, Lord, I come to you. Let me hear from you. Let your word expose my heart. If we're not open in the pages of our Bible, how can we say we fear God? Because we actually don't want to hear from God. We want to hear from ourselves and, and be patted on the back. Oh, you're doing a good job. You're doing a good job. This is why I love expository preaching. Each week, I don't choose what text to preach. I plan out books of the Bible, and I have to preach through hard topics. I didn't choose Ecclesiastes 8. I chose it the moment I chose to preach through the whole of Ecclesiastes. It forces me to deal with the whole of God's word and then to proclaim it. It forces me to, to wrestle, okay, Lord, what is the main point of this? I don't want to give the people a, a word from me. I want them to hear from you because we need to be brought into your presence. We need to be conformed to your ways, not mine. Brothers and sisters, if it's left for me to come up with an inspirational message, huh, forget it. We're in trouble. Because we don't need inspired by, by people who can talk well and, and give motivational speeches. That's what the church has become. And yet, we need people who will open up the Bible and say, God, you speak. Bring us to your word and let us be moved by it. Let your word expose our hearts for the sin in them. And let us fall more in love with the Savior. Expository preaching forces this kind of thing to be done. Us to come to the word with reverence and awe, trying to wrestle and it be God's word, not our own. Let us come then as we approach the Bible in our quiet times in this type of way. God, I'm going to, you know, may, maybe you've never actually sat down and read whole books of the Bible. Or maybe you have and you're out of practice. If that's you, I want to invite you and encourage you. Start this week. Pick up a book of the Bible. If you've not done this or not done it in a long time, start with the Gospel of John and read. Read forever how long you can, and the next day, pick up where you left off and do it again until you make it through the whole. And in preparation, pray. Ask the Lord, open my eyes to behold wondrous things of me of you. Teach me your statutes that I may delight in you. Prepare your heart ahead of time with praying something like that. That's from Psalm 119, verses 17 through 20. Pray and asking the Lord to teach you his ways. This is how we fear God and come in awe of him. This is one way we make sure we are actually fearing God is by holding carefully to his word. Because brothers and sisters, we can't say we fear God if we neglect his word. And here's why. This is both encouraging and to our shame. This Bible is unchanging. 
It's lasting. It's eternal. God's word, the same words that here Solomon wrote thousands of years ago, is still relevant today. It still has that same kind of power. It still has that same kind of authority. How are we going to approach it then? And then are we going to seek to carefully apply this word in our lives where we're at? Carefully applying it. Not just say, okay, who is like the wise? Oh, I I think I'm wise. Oh, that's it. No. Who is like the wise? Oh, man, I really can't say I'm that wise. I don't know everything. Lord, help humble me. Help me to see these truths. That's right handling and right application. And again, all of this is because we fear God. We have an all of him and marveling at who he is and want to know him more. So God wants us to be wise, to wisely handle his word. He wants us to fear him. There's one last thing. The invitation of joy in our final point. Look with me at verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So what Solomon's about to say is he still realizes that all of these things are going on, that the the wicked are are getting away things that should be reserved for the righteous and the righteous are, are seemingly enduring hardships that should be reserved for the wicked. So this is still all vanity in the midst of it. But in the midst of it, look what he follows this up with in verse 15. And I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And I commend joy. We're commended to be joyful, to have joy. Why? Because of what Christ has done for us. Christ has come to redeem us from our sins. And Christian, if we can't be joyful because of that truth, I don't know what we're going to find joy in. This should cause our hearts to swell with joy and delight and worship in our God. That he saved us through the blood of his own beloved son not to mention the things he gives us in daily provisions of a roof over our head, the ability to get here this morning, the food we ate, God provides. How do we continue to live in the midst of the wickedness under the sun? We fear God. We try to rightly apply his word and we find joy in him. This is the call for the Christian life. Let us enjoy our God and all that he has done for us in Christ. Let us continue to fear our God and that to drive us to a greater obedience of faith because we rest in his promises, in his unchanging word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Father, we pray, O Lord, that you will continue to teach us your statutes. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would be a people that are filled with joy and delight in you. Lord, help us to also rightly fear you because of who you are. Lord, we thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can stand with me um, as we close.